You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it uh, known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then listen here. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who hears it and takes it to heart what is written, because the time is near. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you right now for the book of Revelation. God, we thank you that it is a book that, that is, is a, a portrayal of your heart, your heart for us and, and what is to come. And in the end, we know that you win. In the end, we know that you win victoriously and that we can be victorious with you because you are in charge. You are God of God. You are the only one who is and was and is, is to come. You are the, our eternal God. We worship you, Jesus. We love you. And we thank you for this book, e- even though it is confusing at times and, and misunderstood at times. We thank you for it. We, we take this time now to stop, to think about it, to recognize, to read from it, um, because we want to be blessed by reading these words and putting them into practice. So we thank you so much, Jesus. We love you. We love your presence. We love your word. And everybody screamed? Amen. 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 All right. Well, um, imagine it being 1987. The sweetest sporting event of all time happening in the Pontiac Superdome in Michigan. 93,000 people have come. Uh, This is, uh, one source said that this was at that time the largest indoor crowd to ever assemble on the face of the earth. They are there for... WrestleMania 3. Woo! Any wrestling fans out there? Don't be ashamed. It's, it's, it's fun. It's entertaining. Um, is it WC? What is it now? WWE? Anyways, uh, back in the day, 1987, the Hulkster, the good guy, Hulk Hogan, is faced with Andre the Giant, the bad guy, the guy that wears black tights. He's huge. Seven foot five, 500 pounds. Next to Hulk Hogan, it looks like a son is fighting his dad. Like it's that, it's like this guy is huge, Andre the Giant. He's, he doesn't really say too much. He just has a really deep voice and he just says mean things like he's going to crush you with his hands. And then of course, he's, he's fighting Hulk Hogan, the, the, ever, the well-loved, I mean, who doesn't love Hulk? Who loves Hulk Hogan? That's the better way to put it. Everybody loves Hulk Hogan. You have to love Hulk Hogan. He's like the good guy. He's, he's the fun guy. And so in 1987, this battle goes down. Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant. And uh, Hulk Hogan comes out. He, they're, they're talking mean things back and forth. Hulk Hogan tries to pick up Andre the Giant, 500-pound man, to body slam him, and he doesn't. He, for, he tries, but his, he's like, ah, my back, and he's running around the, the ring like, ah, my back, I hurt my back. Andre the Giant pushes him over and then steps on him and then does Hulk Hogan's move. He jumps up and scissor kicks to the face Hulk Hogan, who's laying on the ground. It's entertainment at its best. Back in the day, I think I was like eight, 
nine, seven years, something like that, years old. I was watching this. Uh, it was, I was watching it on VHS tape, and I was like wrestling my brother at this. I was like, when Hulk Hogan did something, I would do it to my little brother and like body slam him. And because uh, I was just so into it as a kid. Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant. And then Hulk Hogan. So, so Hulk Hogan's down on the ground, and you're thinking there. You're sitting there thinking to yourself, is Hulk Hogan going to lose this battle? What is going to happen? You're on the edge of your chair. You're thinking, is the bad guy going to win? Is the good guy really just going to lay there and let Andre the Giant, the bad guy, win? And then all of a sudden, what happens? Hulk Hogan gets up. He does that little thing where like, you run across the ring, bouncing against the, the ropes, and he gains enough speed to run into Andre the Giant, and he picks him up. He picks up Andre the Giant and body slams him. I have a quote here that says that uh, the moment when Hulk Hogan body slammed Andre the Giant remains the most famous moment in professional wrestling history. And of course, the good guy wins. Hulk Hogan, the guy you want to win, the good guy, he wins. He body slams him, holds him down for three seconds, and then you see Hulk Hogan go like this, and the announcer says, Hulk Hogan's doing what he always does. He's thanking the man upstairs. Is that not entertainment? That's awesome. And here's what I want you to hear right now. The reason why I just told you Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan is because in some ways, the book of Revelation should be, can be, compared to a battle like that. A battle that is uh, not fake. Is professional wrestling fake? (laughs) It's not fake. But it's scripted, is what people always say. Is professional wrestling fake? No, it's not fake, but it is scripted. The winner is scripted, but it's not fake. If you jump on someone from the top of the ring, it's still going to hurt them. They st- people still get hurt in professional wrestling. So it's not fake, but it is scripted. Just like the book of Revelation. It's not fake, but it is scripted. We know who wins in the end. Is anybody out there? <laughs> And so in the same way, uh, I, have, I have some notes here. We, I think, can read the book of Revelation with that kind of ener- energy. We can read the book of Revelation with this um, idea of like, is the good guy really going to win? Uh, we could read the book um, it, with this, just coming to it for what it is and read it for what it is. I, I, I was reading commentaries all this week for the book of Revelation. And so many of them say that, you know, this book was intended to, as a letter to be read at an ancient church in, in one sitting. If you were to sit down and start reading the book of Revelation right about now, and you would end in about an hour from now. It takes about an hour to read the book of Revelation. Of course, depending on how fast you read. But you could read the book of Revelation in about an hour. If it's read to you, just listening to it. It's about an hour of listening. And here's what I want you to imagine. Here's, here's why I told the professional wrestling story. Is, is imagine yourself in 95 AD. All right? The book of Revelation is written to uh, seven churches. The first church that it says it's written to is Ephesus. And so imagine yourself in Ephesus, around 90-ish something AD. You're in Ephesus, Asia Minor, what is today Turkey, kind of near the coast of, of the Mediterranean Sea. And there's, you've heard, you hear that someone is delivering a letter and is going to read the letter in church. And the letter is from John, the very disciple of Jesus Christ. That already piques your attention, right? So you, are you imagining it right now? If, if you need to close your eyes, you can. Imagine yourself in Ephesus, 90 AD, uh, 95 AD, wh- whenever the letter actually arrived. Um, imagine yourself 
in Turkey. So it's kind of a Middle Eastern culture. Imagine yourself being controlled by the Roman Empire. If you look outside, there's like Roman architecture, uh, Roman buildings and stuff. You're probably very bored. There's no Facebook. There's no internet. There's no uh, TV. There's not even any magazines. Books back then were extremely rare. You couldn't even read a book if you got bored. You just kind of sat and looked at the dirt if you got bored. Um, But this week, and the early church probably celebrated church on the Sabbath, Saturday. So imagine yourself in Ephesus. You're thinking, okay, a letter is going to come and be read in Ephesus, in my church, from John, a very disciple of Jesus. Are you excited to hear that letter? Yes. You are very excited to hear that letter. I mean, besides just looking in the dirt because you got bored, like, oh, you're like, man, this Saturday, when we come together as a church service and we do worship, a letter is going to be read. And when the letter is read, there are stories in here that are entertaining. There are stories in here that are scripted. They're not fake. And so let me just read one. And, and I want you to think about it as, as if you've never heard of the book of Revelation before, as if this letter was being read in your church. Tell me whether or not you would be involved and excited. So I'm looking at, I'm just kind of, kind of, uh, look at Revelation chapter 11. You could kind of listen to it, pretend like you're one of that, uh, original audience in Ephesus listening to this letter. And chapter 11 talks about these two witnesses, two witnesses of God. Uh, verse three says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Verse five, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Wouldn't that be sweet? Like imagine a WWF match where like someone was spitting fire. That guy's awesome. Um, But they're the good guy. So the two witnesses, the good guy. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die by the fire that comes out of their mouth. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it did not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have uh, power to turn the waters into blood. I mean, think about that. It's like an epic battle and this is going down. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. And so here's the good guys. We're almost like we're rooting for these guys. Yeah, these guys that have fire out of their mouth. And they're the good guys. They're witnessing to Jesus Christ. And then it says, uh, verse 7 says, The beast that comes from the abyss will attack them. And another part of the book of Revelation, the beast is talked about as, Who is like the beast? Who can make war with the beast? So two witnesses, the good guys. Here comes the bad guy. The beast will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Everybody say, what? So if you're, th- if you're listening to this for the first time, you're thinking, will the force of good win? You're in Ephesus. So you're thinking, will the force of good win? Will God win? Because there's outside, there's the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at this time, 90-ish AD, hates Christians, brings Christians to Colosseums. And we know from archaeology that there was a stadium, a Colosseum in Ephesus. And so it's very likely that a Christian could just be pulled out of their home for worshiping Jesus, brought to a Colosseum, and fed to a lion or killed by a gladiator. This is the real deal. Ephesians, Ephesians are, are thinking to themselves, is good going to win? Is the Roman Empire going to win? Or is, is Christ going to win? Who, who's going to win this epic battle of spirituality? And so you're thinking to yourself, as, as the two witnesses just died, you're thinking, oh my gosh, is that what's going to happen to me? Oh my gosh, are, are God's witnesses all going to die? What is this? And, and then listen on. Uh, the beast attacks them. Their, their, body, their bodies lie in the street. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate by sending each other gifts. 
Those are the good guys. The good guys are dead. The world is celebrating that the good guys are dead. Wouldn't that make you mad? If you're sitting there listening and you're in Ephesus and you're just listening to the story for what it is, you're like, wow, you're on the edge of your seat. Like, is that it? The two witnesses are dead? Uh, what's what's going to happen? Is that going to be like us? But then you read verse 11. But after three days, a breath of life from God enters them and they stand on their feet and, and, and terror strikes those that saw them. And they hear in a loud voice in heaven calling up to them, come up here. And then they went to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And there, in that very hour, there was an earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave God glory in heaven. The good guys win. Does that not excite you, Ephesians? That's exciting. I mean, if you think about the book of Revelation as this epic battle being waged of the forces of good, forces of God, overcoming the forces of evil. But, but all along in the story, there's these, there's these points where it makes you wonder, like the two, the two witnesses die. All along in these points, you're wondering, um, will we really win? Will we really reign victoriously with God? Um, what is going to happen? One more story in the book of Revelation. This one's uh, about the woman and the dragon. Imagine yourself just listening to this for the first time ever and, and, and letting your imagination go. Lots of commentaries say that you know, the book of Revelation in some ways should be read like the Psalms, allowing your, your spirit and your imagination to kind of flow and to, in, to enter into the story, to think about what is really, being, what is really happening here. And so just re- think about it for what it is. A woman was clothed with the sun and the moon and her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. That's the image of the mother of the Messiah, uh, Jesus' mother. She was pregnant and cried out in pain. She was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads. Everybody say, oh. So here's this woman. She's about to give birth. She is, you know, that image of the the mother of the Messiah is about to give birth. And listen to this. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child at the moment it was born. I mean, you see this image like, okay, here's here's a good, good guys, this woman and her son. And this red dragon with seven heads is about to eat this baby. And she gave birth to the son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, another image of Christ. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to prepare for her that had been prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of. And there was a war in heaven. And so it, just as that battle ends, there's another, another battle. Just like in World Wrestling Federation. As soon as like one, there's never like a lull. It's just never like, man, this is boring. There's always more and exciting things happening. It's like one battle ends and then like a tag team match starts out of nowhere, right? Anyways, uh, and then there was a war in heaven. Michael and all his angels fought against the dragon, the same red dragon with seven heads. And the dragon with his angels fought back. But the dragon was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth in all the angels that were with him. And then I heard in a loud voice in heaven, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God. And then we find out that the dragon running around on earth, because he's been thrown down there, the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And the woman was given 
two great wings as an eagle that she might uh, go and, uh, to, the, to fly to, to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of. And then out of the serpent's mouth, out of, this, out of his mouth, then came water like a river to overtake the woman, to sweep her away with the torrent. And so you're thinking to yourself, is this woman going to get away? We don't know yet. But the earth helped her. The earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged that the woman had went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. The the dragon goes off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so once again, the good guy wins. Have you ever thought about reading the book of Revelation like that? So often I know that I come to reading the book of Revelation and I'm just like, okay, I've got to understand it. I've got to put all these things into a time chart. I've got to figure all this stuff out. It's so confusing. And I've got to stop at every verse and try to figure out what's going on. But I think if the book of Revelation was written to an ancient people in Ephesus at a time of 90 AD when they were just to sit down and hear it all at once, then you would read it much more like a psalm. You would read it with your imagination. You would read it wondering on the edge of your chair, is the good guy going to win or is the bad guy, guy going to overtake him? And at each little victory, you would be celebrating. You'd be thanking God. Yes, in the end, God is going to win. I had a friend, a, a mentor in college that, uh, looking back, he, he helped me um, figure out how to pray. He was a great mentor back in college. And he, he had a cell phone. And on the cell phone, instead of his name or instead of like a silly little quote as, as far as his main screen was, it just said, God wins. And I liked that quote. I just thought, in the end, we know that God wins because the book of Revelation has been scripted. There is an end. God knows the end. And in it, he wins. Amen? All right. That's your intro to the book of Revelation. Anyways, <laughs> some announcements. We are studying uh, eschatology all this month, uh, the study of the end times. Uh, the times have changed. Uh, 9.30 to 10.30 is when Mill Sunday School is going down. So I imagine like there's a bunch of people about to show up because it's about 10 o'clock. So when they come in, don't look at them. Don't make fun of them for being late. They, didn't, they forgot or didn't know. But anyways, it, so all of so even on the flyers, like on your on your all your tables of the Mill Sunday School flyer, I believe it still says the old time, ten o'clock. We're getting new flyers printed. We had to change our times because the church changed back their times because the time change didn't work. Too many people were going to the early service, and it was it was crowded. I don't know whose idea that was. Brady Boyd, what's he thinking these days? <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> he, he jokes about it too. We, we experimented with the time change. Didn't really work, so we're changing back. So Sunday school now. Everybody say 9.30 to 10.30. Perfect. Uh, if you're newish to the Mill Sunday School, we have uh, first-timer cards on a lot of the tables. Uh, pick one of those up. Give us your information. Uh, bring it to the, to the back table when you leave or bring it to me. I'd love to meet you. And uh, we want to welcome you. You get, a, you get a CD for coming today. Uh, thanks so much for being here if you're newish. Uh, thanks so much for coming, especially as we study the book of Revelation, end times, eschatology stuff. All right. Are you ready for the big picture book of Revelation? Are you ready? I need to like do a wrestling match up here to get everybody excited, not just talk about it. We should have had it like reenacted. Wouldn't that have been awesome? I'd be Andre the Giant, obviously. All right. I have in your notes, if you got your notes, your skillet, it says, in times for sures. 
So the things that will for surely happen in the end times. And I have four points that I want to give you. And I want to give you these points so that you could read the book of Revelation with confidence. Because here's your homework assignment. Do you want a homework assignment? Yes, you love homework. Your assignment is to read the book of Revelation. Whether it takes you all day, whether it takes you, you have to break it up and just read a chapter per day. Um, the, the book says that we will, will be blessed if we read it. And we'll be blessed if we hear it and take to heart what is written. So I want you to be blessed. I want you to read the book of Revelation. You could read it like it was intentionally uh, written to the, the first church. Meaning you sit down at one time. You, you set aside a full hour and you sit and read the whole thing. Um, you could do a Google search. Just put in, uh, listen to the book of Revelation, in Google, when you go home to your computer, if you own a computer, type in, listen to the book of Revelation, hit enter on Google, and there's like 10 options to click on so that you could just sit back and listen to the book of Revelation. But your homework assignment is to read the book of Revelation. Don't be scared of it. Don't think, oh, it's too confusing. Just read it with imagination. Read it with your heart open. Um, Read it knowing that there's lots of different interpretations, but here's four things that we know for sure. Four things that we know for sure that will happen in the end times. It's clearly in the book of Revelation. It's clearly throughout the Gospels. It's clearly throughout the letters. These are for sure things that we know about the book of Revelation, about the end times. Are you ready for number one? Number one, we do know that Jesus will return. Do you believe that? It's one of our, usually in statements of faith, there's a statement about he will come again. In, in the book of Acts, uh, Jesus ascends and an angel says, don't worry, he will, he will come back in the same way uh, that he ascended. He will, he will come back. Jesus will return. On the back of your skillet, the notes that you were given when you came in, is on the back there's a sweet quote. We always have a sweet quote. The sweet quote this week is, uh, what, what is it? I'm coming soon. Jesus. Yeah, he says that. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Jesus says he's coming back. And so, number one, we know for sure that Jesus will return. That's one of the things in the end times that we know about. Number two, are you ready? Number two, the world will end. This world will end. Think about it. All the cool stuff, Pikes Peak someday won't exist anymore. Um, This table won't exist. Some things are eternal. Love God, our spirit, our eternal. But this world will end. We know that. That's one of the for sures that we know about eschatology. Got it? Got it. Number three, resurrection of the dead. We know that there is an afterlife. We know that when our bodies die and are put into the ground, that um, some religions just believe that, you know, or atheists believe that, oh, there's nothing happens. That our bodies are put into the ground and then they decay and then nothing ever happens again. When we die, we're dead. There is no afterlife. There is no resurrection of the dead. As Christians, we believe um, throughout Revelation, throughout Jesus' teaching, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection of the dead. We believe in an afterlife. We will believe that when we die, we will be resurrected. And so there's lots of different opinions about that and how that's going to happen and the rapture and uh, like soul sleep and all these different things. But we all know for sure, as Christians, throughout the Bible, we know, number three, there is a resurrection of the dead. So number one, Jesus will return. Number two, the world will end. Number three, the resurrection of the dead. And number four, judgment. That there will be a judgment 
in the end. In the eschatology, individually for us as humans, when we die, we will be judged according to what we've believed in Jesus Christ, whether we've um, tried to work things out in our own life all by ourselves, or we've, whether we've believed something silly, whether we have lived selfishly with our spiritual beliefs, or whether we've given our life over to Christ, over to God. And so, in the end, there will be a judgment. So we know these four things about eschatology. In the end, Jesus will return. The wor- this world will end. There will be a resurrection of the dead, and there will be judgment. And so, there's a lot of things that, um, that are not for sures. How many of you have opinions about what's going to happen in the end times? Whether you're like a pre-tribber or a post-tribber or a mid-tribber or you're a pre-millennialist or an amillennialist or a post-millennialist. Do any of those words make sense to anybody? Some of you have probably heard them before. Some of you are like, yeah, I've heard those words, but I have no idea what they mean. Keep coming this month. We'll talk about all of those words. And so um, there's a lot of different interpretations of the book of Revelation. Lots of different, have you ever seen those charts that people make? Like, here's what will happen here, and then this will happen, and then the beast will come back, and, and then the Antichrist, and then, of course, Obama is the Antichrist, and then, and then, <laughs> and then on and on, and they have like these full charts of like what's going to happen, or websites, or they'll, somebody will pick a time, like Jesus is coming back, and uh, let's say there's like 88 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1988 turned out it didn't happen. But people have lots of opinions. People have interpretations when it comes to the book of Revelation. Sometimes these people are crazy. Sometimes these people are totally normal. But when it comes to the rapture, when it comes to pre-trib, post-trib, when it comes to, is the Antichrist literal? Uh, Some Christians, there's in fact many Christians who believe that the whole book of Revelation is figurative, not pertaining to the end times, but pertaining to the first century church. And so there's all kinds of interpretations when it comes to the book of Revelation. I mean, all kind. I mean, if there's any one book that has like the most interpretations about it, it's probably the book of Revelation. And so I, I, I gave you the four for sures, like these four for sures will happen, but there's a whole bunch up for grabs when it comes to the book of Revelation as far as how someone can interpret it and how people can argue and debate, oh no, this means this, or no, this happens before this, or on and on, etc., etc. Um, I get a lot of emails throughout the week. I'm kind of known as, I think once I got my doctorate, I got my doctorate a couple months ago, I've just, in, every, people see me as, oh, Joe must be really smart. He must love answering wild insane questions. And so people on staff, like other pastors, will forward me emails, like Brady does this weekly. It's like, Joe, this guy has an email question about this random thing, like the Nephilim. Joe, will you get back to him? Because you're smart. (laughs) You must know all this stuff. And so every week, a good portion of my week uh, doing emails is answering really random questions, which is kind of fun in some ways. But uh, the assumption is that I already know the answer to all these really weird things, which is not true. I have to research them. It's like, why couldn't you have just researched it? Anyways, um, a guy from the mill emailed me um, about the rapture. He asked me about the rapture, and since he was from the mill, and I kind of knew him, I, I'd met him before, I said, let's meet up and, and, and talk and talk about the rapture over some coffee. And so the rapture, if you don't, have you never heard that term, the rapture is this idea that we'll all just disappear like like that. And then all these clothes will be here and wedding rings and wallets and stuff. And like, we'll all be, Christians will all be gone. How many of you have read the, or not read, read or seen Left Behind series? Like that scene, like they're in the plane and Kirk Cameron is like on the plane and then like all these people just disappear and their clothes are there. 
folded. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> so that's the rapture. And so there's lots of questions about, uh, maybe you've heard this terminology before. We'll explain it later in, in, throughout this month. But does the rapture happen before the tribulation? Does it happen after the tribulation? Does it happen mid the tribulation, mid-trib. Um, and so I, I met with co- for coffee this guy that had emailed me about the rapture. We were talking about the rapture. And I think he just, he like wanted to be a heretic. He's like, I don't want to believe what you tell me to believe. I want to be a heretic. And so he kind of crosses his, his arms and says, I don't believe in the rapture. And I was like, okay. And I think just by saying, okay, he was like surprised. Like, I think he wanted me to like beat him up or yell at him. Or so I don't know what he wanted, but it it seemed like he was like trying to start a fight or something. But I just said, oh, you don't believe in the rapture? Okay. And he just looked at me. We're both just looking at each other. And so so I said, why? Why don't you believe in the rapture? And he said, well, I can't really find it in the book of Revelation. And I was like, well, you're kind of right. The the rapture isn't ever mentioned in the book of Revelation. You kind of have to do some uh, interpreting of, of, of some verses to even find the rapture in the book of Revelation. And he said, yeah, that's why I don't believe in it. I was like, okay. But then I, so I asked him, well, what about 1 Corinthians 15? What about uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, Matthew chapter 25, this idea that Jesus comes back for his people and then the dead in Christ, the people that are already dead, they, they get raised up, but then the people that are living join them. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and so there's, there's talk about that. And so I'm just looking at this guy and he, he wanted me to like get mad at him because he thought the rapture was like this for sure biblical truth. And he wanted, I think in some ways he wanted to be this heretic that didn't believe in it. Um, but I just listened to him and I, I told him, you know, I, I said, I kind of had to give him, like I asked him, why don't you believe in the rapture? And didn't really have an answer. And so I kind of had to give him a reason why. I was like, well, people that don't believe in the rapture usually believe that, that, that Jesus coming back is the same event as the rapture, meaning that Jesus returns, there, Jesus returns the end of the world, the dead, that have, the people that have already died are raised, the people that are living are, are raised up and they never have to die. They're just raised up right there. Um, and so that's usually what people believe if they don't believe in a rapture. And I just thought it was, I don't know, maybe, I guess you had to be there um, in some ways, but I, it was this idea that there's, for, there's definitely four sures, those four sures, and I gave you four of them, that are going to happen in the end times, but the rest is, is up for different interpretations, different views. And so here's what I want to do right now. This, this, I want to turn to uh, a parable that Jesus said, and we're going to look at this parable, and, um, and then we're going to, I'm going to give you a very wacky interpretation, and then I'm going to ask you, um, what, how, are there rules for, for avoiding wacky interpretations? Are there hermeneutical rules? We'll get to this idea in a second, but I just want to preface that because pretty much we're all over the place this morning. Started off talking about Hulk Hogan, then we went into the book of Revelation, now we're going to look at a, a parable of Jesus, we're all over the place in middle Sunday school. But I, I want to tell you that there's a reason why we're going to a, a very simple parable and then we're going to come back to Revelation. Is everybody okay with that? Hopefully you will be. But I just don't want you to think, man, Sunday school, what? We're talking about Hulk Hogan and then Revelation and then the par- parable of the Good Samaritan. We're all over the place. Sunday school's dumb. I hate Sunday school. Don't hate it yet. Don't hate it just yet. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 30. And you could actually turn, if you have a Bible, we have Bibles on some of the tables. Uh, Turn to it and look at it with your own eyes because I'm going to ask you a discussion question. Um, Basically, how how should we interpret this parable in just a second? And it's good if you have it right there in front of you. So basically, the parable of the Good Samaritan is, 
Um, and even non-Christians have heard the term Good Samaritan, right? Everybody's heard the term Good Samaritan. It's a term that comes from this parable because the parable is about a guy, a Jewish guy, that it's for going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on his way, he's beat up by a bunch of robbers. They rob him, they beat him up, they leave him for dead. And then on the road, so he's on one side of the road, bleeding to death, all beaten up. On one side of the road, a priest comes by. And you think, oh, here's a priest. He's going to save him. But the priest actually walks on the other side of the road and doesn't even look at him, avoids helping this beaten up man. And then it says that a Levite, you know, this is someone from the tribe of Levi, someone who represents the priesthood as well, comes by and you think, oh, this guy's going to save this poor beaten up man. But he as well passes on the other side of the road and does not take care of this beaten up man. And then we have a Samaritan. And back, th- back then there was a lot of racism towards Samaritans because they were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. Uh, there was a lot of racism towards them. They were considered less than um, And so a Samaritan was traveling by. And you think, oh, a dirty Samaritan. He's traveling by, and he actually stops. He helps this man that's been beaten up. It says he he puts... Uh, he puts, he gives him medicine, basically. He bandages his wounds. He takes him, he puts him on a donkey, takes him to an inn, and then gives the innkeeper some money to take care of this guy while he's gone. And then Jesus asks, who do you think was a neighbor to the one who fell uh, to the hands of the robbers? He's asking a question. He just tell, told that parable. Now, many of you already know some insights into this parable, um, but imagine yourself at a small group. You're at a small group, you're looking at this passage, and then one person in the small group, like the weird guy, that guy, pipes up and says, oh, I know what this parable is all about. The parable is about the man, uh, a man, and the man represents all mankind. And he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's going from Jerusalem, which is heaven, to Jericho, which is hell. And he falls into some hands of some robbers, a.k.a. sin. He falls into sin, but the Samaritan represents an evangelist. And the evangelist brings him to an inn, a.k.a. the church. And at, at the church, the, the Samaritan gives the innkeeper two coins, a.k.a. Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And, and he's just going on and on. He's like, that's the only way to interpret this parable. And everyone in the small group is just kind of like looking around like, okay. And the small group leader says, okay, does anyone else have any other interpretations of this passage? And then that guy pipes up again. He's like, no, that's the only way to interpret this passage. That's the only way we can look at it. And so the small group is like, okay, uh, that's a little weird. And so what I want you to do right now is to look at the passage. You may have to reread it, rethink about it, but I want you to ask the question, um, at this question, are there rules to combat wacky interpretations of this passage? So here we are, we're looking at a very simple story, a parable of Jesus. We're going to take the, here's what we're doing, just to give you a big idea. We're going to take some of these rules and then apply them to the, the much bigger, the much more confusing book of Revelation. But I want to I start simple and just look at this parable and say, okay, if there's wacko guy in your small group saying that this is the only way to interpret the passage, are there rules to combat this sort of wacky interpretation? What are those rules? Okay. So you, do you have the, the idea of what you're... So you could either sit there, reread the passage, think about it for yourself, and, and then what I would like you to do is, is to chit-chat amongst some people around you and, and maybe come up with some rules just very quickly. Sound good? Sound fun? All right, do it. Ready, get set, go. 
All right. Um, let's let's talk in a big group. <clears throat> if you have uh, so basically the question was what rules are there? And by the way, the rules are are the big word is called hermeneutics. That's the next point in your notes. Hermeneutics is the study of interpreting the Bible. So if you've never heard the word hermeneutics before, that's what that means, interpreting the Bible. And there are some rules in hermeneutics, some some big principles that we should come to every passage with in order to get a correct interpretation. So there's I think there's some dudes with some mics. Um, get so there, there's the dude over there. His name's Malcolm. He's pretty cool. And I think Joel over here he has he has a mic too. Get their attention um, and then and then give us some uh, give us one of these rules or a point or maybe someone in your group said something really cool and um, you want to share it with the rest of the group. I think there's some back there. There's some hands going up over there. Yes, sir. Thank you for being was, first to share. I was thinking context, like I can't apply like our culture to in into their culture. To yeah, context. Yeah. Write that word down. That is huge. That is good. Context is huge. Context of the passage. What's going on? Jesus tells a parable because someone asked him, "Who is my neighbor?" That's pretty important. That's that's part of context. Yes, uh, way up in the front up here. And then if maybe after him, does anybody want to go after him while he's getting the mic? Okay, and then Matthew after him. Okay. This guy's name is Kenny G. Not it's to be confused with the flute sax playing player. Kenny, not it's the Kenny f- Garcia. No, anyway, it's Grasha. <laughs> oh, yeah. Joe. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Sorry. When you're interpreting the Bible, you have, to, you have to have a knowledge of who the audience was. Audience! Who, Write who that was word down. To. Um, because because who is Jesus speaking to in the passage, and who is the author speaking to? Author, write um, that word down. You have because because you're reading you're reading in Luke, and so not only are you reading what Jesus is speaking to a specific group of people, you're also reading what Luke was writing to a specific group of people. So you have to know who those people are before you can go about interpreting whether or not it's about an evangelism of heaven and hell. Yes, thank you so much, Kenny G. Well so we got context. Know the context of the passage. Know who it was written to. Who wrote it? That's huge. Those things can give us the correct interpretation. You can't just sit down and just start making stuff up. There is rules when doing hermeneutics. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Thank you. Well, there was a lot of trouble in the early church with people making uh, funny interpretations of Scripture and a lot of false teaching that was uh, coming uh, as yeah. a result of this where people would be uh, like there was this one woman mentioned in Scripture where she was like, okay, this is a God of love, so that means if you come have sex with me, then we are worshiping this God of love. And Paul had to come back and say no. Right. Um, and uh, one of the things that Paul said in the New Testament was if their interpretation, if their teaching disagrees with something that Jesus said, then you can't do that. Yeah. The, the way it words it in the passage is if it says that Jesus Christ is Lord, then it, then it's a true teaching. But what you have to realize when he was saying this is not only is Jesus Christ Lord, but is everything that Jesus Christ has said solid and true and yeah, without fault. Yeah, that's good. I would say, so write this down, context of the Bible. So context of the passage itself and what's going on in the, in the passage. And then like Matt's saying, the context of the whole Bible. Did you write that down? Did you write it down? <laughs> so we got context of the whole passage, context of the Bible, who it was written to, the audience, the author. Um, any, any more? There's, there's one more big principle. Yeah, right there. And, and then I'll, I'll give you a couple more. 
Uh, one thing, that, especially when you're going for like analogies and metaphors, is the reoccurring themes like God is the rock, and so if it says later on something about a rock, then you can connect that in yeah. other scriptures. Yeah, that's so, good. I'm yeah. going to say genre. So if you're making al- allegories, well, then you're in the allegorical genre. Jesus is telling a parable. That parable is a type of genre. Revelation is a type of genre. It's called apocalyptic genre. Let's give the mic guys a ha- hand. Thank Mike, guys. Great job. Um, so, hermeneutical principles. So, in your notes, under hermeneutics, you should have things like the rules, such as looking at the context of the passage, looking at the context of the greater Bible. Um, what is, who was it written to? Who was it written from? Um, kind of the social context as well. And then maybe, finally, you'd have genre. Like, what type of writing is this? And so... There's this big statement that I say over and over again when talking about hermeneutics. You've probably heard me say it like 10 times or more. The statement is, the Bible's not written to us, the Bible's written for us. The Bible's not written to us, but it is written for us. And so Jesus wasn't literally telling us, New Life Church, 2009, this parable of the Samaritan but it's, it's a truth. He's telling a parable that represents a great truth about not being racist and how everyone is your neighbor and how you should treat all people with love as your neighbor. That's the truth. That's the parable, what it's about. And so that applies. That's for us. But, but we have to look into it. We, ha- we don't know what a Samaritan is unless we study. We don't know where Jerusalem is or where Jericho is unless we look at a map and we know a little bit about the Middle East. Because we live in Colorado Springs. Jerusalem's far away from here. Samaritans are, are people that are, are half Jewish, half, half Babylonian. We don't, I don't even know a Samaritan. Do you? I don't know. Maybe they, I, don't, I don't know if they still exist or not. Um, and so we, we have to realize that it's not written to us, but it is written for us. Okay, final, final kind of closings ideas. The context of the book of Revelation, this last point in your notes, that the book of Revelation, in the same way, we have to apply some of these rules of hermeneutics. The same way we would take a simple parable and say, Oh, dude, at my small group, you're crazy for thinking, you know, this parable's about a mystic man going from heaven to hell and that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the coins that that an evangelist gave an innkeeper. You're crazy because you have to apply some hermeneutical rules when you interpret any part of Scripture. So in, in looking at a simple parable, let's apply those same rules to the book of Revelation. And that's kind of where we're going this month, as we have quite a few more Sundays to go. We're going to apply hermeneutical principles to the book of Revelation. So while, you know, if someone at your small group, if you're studying the book of Revelation and someone in your small group had like a wacky idea, you would all just sit there and listen to them, right? And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, the the Antichrist, yeah, Obama, I'm, I'm hearing you, preach it, brother. But... But if you said the Samaritan man is Obama, they'd look at you like, what? You're insane. This is a parable. In the same way, the book of Revelation, you have to come to it with hermeneutical principles and rules. And so, for example, if, if the, the context of Revelation is, I've already given you some of these points. The context, it was written in 95-ish AD. We're not totally sure. It's written from, from John the, the disciple of Jesus from the island of Patmos. He was in prison there in the context of being in prison by the Roman rule, sent a letter. So it's a, actually a letter to seven churches. And, and the letter 
fits in the form of apocalyptic genre. And this may blow you away, but that type of genre was popular back then. Just like movies today, like there's different genres of movies, right? If you're going to a movie, you would kind of ask like, what kind of genre is it in? You might not use that word, but you'd be like, oh, is it an action flick? Is it a chick flick? Is it a murder mystery horror flick? What kind of genre does it fit in, right? That's something that applies to us and and how, how we think about things. In the same way, the book of Revelation falls into a type of writing that was already in existence. People would sit down and write stories about angels and demons and wars and fighting and, and the good guys winning and this mystic and blood and, and bowls being poured out and seals and scrolls and this dragon kind of like mythological, allegorical writing was already a type of genre in existence before the book of Revelation was written. That in some ways may surprise you. I mean, we got, a, we got a lot to talk about this month when it comes to the book of Revelation, but I want us to all realize that it's, it's like any other book of the Bible. It's not written to us, but it's written for us. And so we really do need to th- sit and think, okay, if it wasn't written to us, then it was written to another people, an ancient people in Ephesus uh, and those other, the other six churches, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, Philadelphia, etc., if it was written to them, how would they have understood it? How would they have interpreted it? You know, there's, there's many interpretations today that say um, uh, maybe the seven churches represent seven different ages of the church. And that's a fine interpretation as long as you know that first you need to interpret that these seven churches were real seven churches in the province of Asia before you say, oh, they, they could represent seven ages or maybe uh, there's, there's an interpretation of what is the mark of the beast. And some people are like, oh, it's a GPS system that goes into your head and hand. Or back in the day, like when UPC codes were coming out, people were like, whoa, that's the mark of the beast because they have numbers on them. And some of those numbers can add up to 666. Like that's the mark of the beast. So that's how we could interpret it. But it's not, the book of Revelation is not written to us, it's for us. And so may, that interpretation is okay. I've heard it. Uh, before that the UPC codes are the mark of the beast. But before you jump to that interpretation, you should have an interpretation that the early church, they thought the mark of the beast was the Roman coin that had Caesar's face on it. And you couldn't buy or sell without Caesar's face. And Caesar's face um, represented this Roman persecution, people that hated you and wanted to kill you in Colosseums. And you couldn't buy or sell without that mark uh, on the coin. Um, you could say that Obama is the Antichrist. I keep hearing that. I laugh when I hear it, but some people are like, don't laugh. I'm serious. He really is the Antichrist. And I was like, okay, well, that's your interpretation of that passage. It's definitely not a for sure of the end times that Obama is the Antichrist. But you first have to realize, before you jump to that interpretation, you should interpret, okay, the early church thought the Antichrist was Caesar, the, the Roman emperor. You could say, you know, it talks a lot about Babylon the Great. You could say, oh, Babylon the Great is Las Vegas because it's a bad city and there's a lot of prostitution and et cetera, et cetera. But you have to realize that the early church back in the day, 95 AD, when they heard the term Babylon, they thought Rome because in the same way Rome or in the same way Babylon took out the Jews um, in, in BC era, and it was the same way that Rome was taking out the Christians in this, in this uh, early church era. And so... 
Those, those interpretations are fine. If you believe Obama is, is the Antichrist, if you believe uh, that we're going to get injected with a GPS symbol in our foreheads or hand, um, those things are okay. I really like and, and enjoy reading and watching the Left Behind series, or I did a long time ago. Um, <laughs> but those interpretations have to rely on, okay, the Bible is not written to us, but for us. We need to come to the the same hermeneutical principles of interpreting the book of Revelation and then extract from those interpretations how the early church would have interpreted it for today. And so um, I hope, hopefully I've I've introduced this topic well enough. I I really don't hope to confuse you with with Revelation. I opened up with comparing the book of Revelation to uh, a world wrestling federation battle between good and evil because in a lot of ways that's what it is. The book of Revelation is a scripted, and I mean that by, uh, and, and not a irreverent way, but the book of Revelation is a scripted play-by-play uh, of the end. That in the end, Jesus wins. In the end, God wins. That we as believers have nothing to be afraid of because we're with God, and, and the side of the God always wins. And bad things might happen. We might get hurt. We might get killed. We might get martyred. But in the end... We're victorious with Christ. That's the book of Revelation. That's your homework assignment, to read that, to see that, to know that in the end you'll be victorious with Christ. Let's pray. God, we do thank you right now. We praise you for for the battle is already won. We praise you that the book of Revelation is entertaining and it's awesome. And it's a story of good, overcoming evil. It's a story of you, Jesus, overcoming Satan and all that is evil. God, we praise you. We thank you for this amazing book, this remarkable book that should encourage us, that that shouldn't implant fear in us, but should implant encouragement that in the end, you win. In the end, we are victorious with you. So God, we love you and we praise you. And everyone said, Amen. All right, everybody, you're dismissed. Big church starts at 11 o'clock. And and so you have a half hour to chit-chat, to pick up mission trip applications, to get another cup of coffee, to, to come up here and wrestle me, whatever. Peace out.